Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and in every episode, I bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're looking at wartime correspondent and explorer who found David Livingston, Henry M. Stanley. Regarding Henry M. Stanley, it has been about a year since I first teased him in a David Livingston episode I did with Revived uh, Thoughts about, oh, I think it was, yeah, about last summer. And we are about to embark on a three-part series on his life. The first episode will deal with his early life before he even goes on the quest to find Livingston. The second episode will deal with uh, his quest to find Livingston, and the third episode will deal with his exploration of the interior of the Congo. All three of these are epic adventures, and they would not work condensed into one or even two episodes. I did try, and it would just not be doing him justice. But letting you know that this is going to be a little bit different than the other episodes we have done in the past, where there is much more of a central focus on the martyrdom or the missionary journeys and experiences of these, you know, men and women. But Henry M. Stanley is very unique in that he comes from a very difficult background and doesn't come to Christ until later in life after he meets Livingston. And so it's going to be a little bit different than our previous episodes, but you are definitely in for a treat. Majority of the information that I have on him comes from a biography written by a man named Tim Geel, and the book is entitled Africa's Greatest Explorer, and I will link it, as always, in the episode description. And it's a hefty tome. It's about 600 pages, and it pulls from his uh, his journals and from different correspondence uh, with people throughout his life. So it's very, very, very well done. But it's it's 600 pages, and I'm only 100 pages in. So it, we've got a ways to go. But without further ado, here is the story of Henry M. Stanley. Henry Morton Stanley was actually not born as Henry Morton Stanley. He was born as John Rowlands in Wales, in January of 1841, and he was the illegitimate son of an unknown father. Um, His mother would go on to have a few more, five or six more illegitimate children, and his mother was not interested in raising him in particular. She took much more keen interest in his siblings later in life, and we'll explore that as we go through. But he was raised for the first few years of his life by his grandfather. And when he was very young, his grandfather died, and he was placed into the care of his aunt and uncle. Now, his family was very well-to-do, but they really didn't want anything to do with this illegitimate uh, child. And it was seen as kind of a a mark on the family, kind of a, a, you know, black stain to have an illegitimate child. So he spends a great deal of his time feeling very unwanted. And this is something that will kind of play into his life, and we'll see uh, how it influences him throughout pretty much all of his life, to be honest with you. But when he's about six years old, his aunt and uncle decide they've had enough of this little boy. They don't really want him in the family anymore. And so they decide to send him to a workhouse called St. Asaph. And they use their teenage son to bring him there. 
And as they're walking and they're goofing around and his, his cousin's not telling him what they're doing, he's just pretending they're on an adventure. It's no big deal. And so little John keeps asking, well, what are we going to do? What are we doing today, cousin? And he says, oh, we're just going on a little walk. And then they end up at this door, the door of the workhouse. And he rings the bell very sheepishly and begins to walk away. And little John says, hey, where are you going? And he says, oh, I'm just going to go get you some cakes. Now, Henry never in his life forgave his cousin. He said, in 50 years, this is he's writing this as a middle-aged man. He says, my betrayal had not abated one bit. It would have been better for me if he, being stronger than me, had employed compulsion instead of shattering my confidence and planting the first seeds of distrust in a child's heart. When Henry is about eight years old, he sees his mother for the very first time, and he doesn't recognize her, has no idea who she is, because when he was a baby, he was dropped off at his grandfather's house, and he just never knew his mother. And so when he sees her for the very first time, she's there not for him, but to drop off two other children. And this isn't a fairy tale meeting. There's nothing grand about it. His mother is just a very kind of cold, aloof, dismissive woman. And she doesn't even speak to him. She just, she just drops her kids off and leaves. And that was his first interaction with her. When he's about 15 years old, he makes a very brief escape to visit another aunt and uncle of his. And he describes a very perfect day. He goes over to his aunt and uncle's house. His uncle is out. His aunt allows him to play with his cousins. She feeds him. She bathes him. She reads him a bedtime story. Everything is just beautiful and right with the world. Until his uncle gets home. And when his uncle gets home, he is livid that the aunt would ever let an illegitimate child come into their respectable home. And so the next day, he is sent back to the workhouse. But a few months later, he is out for good. A cousin, another cousin, <laughs> has taken him in. And this cousin is a headmaster at a local prestigious school. And it's while he's staying with his cousin that he learns the skills he needs to become a great writer and this great writing career, this great war correspondence career that he will have in later years. Because his cousin has this immense library. And this is when he also develops an interest in travel books and in poetry and in all sorts of great literature. And his cousin tutors him daily and everything's going well until his aunt. His aunt comes in and his aunt says, you can't be having this boy in your house because what will people think? And if people know you have this illegitimate child in your house, your marriage prospects will dwindle and you will die as an old lonely bachelor. And so his cousin's behavior towards him changes almost instantaneously, and he is kicked out and shipped off to a different relative's house in Liverpool. Now, Liverpool is a well-known port city in England, and so there's lots of job opportunities, particularly if you want to work on the seaside or on a ship. And within a few weeks, he has landed a gig as a butcher's boy, but he longs to get away. All he's seen so far is one tiny piece of the world, and he wants to get away. Because who he is in Wales and in England is this illegitimate boy named John Rollins, and he wants a different story for himself. So when a captain comes along and offers him a job as a cabin boy traveling the world, he very quickly accepts. He's excited. But what he doesn't realize is this is a very common scam. 
captains will find boys just like him. They'll bring them onto a ship. They'll abuse them, mistreat them, give them the hardest work until eventually when they reach America, they're out on the first port and then the captain gets to pocket their wages. And this is exactly what happens to Henry. About seven weeks after he leaves Liverpool, he lands in New Orleans and he hops off and he's a new man. He has this whole world before him. And especially if you think about it, put yourself in the mindset of a European coming to what is still really known as like the new frontier, the new world. And there's a whole host of possibilities and you can be anybody you want to be in America. This is an exciting time for him and he fully seizes the opportunity. Now, I know you're wondering, how did John Rowlands become Henry Morton Stanley? And that is a question. That is, that is a great mystery. And there are many different people who have many different theories. According to Henry's story, he jumps off the ship in New Orleans and he is almost immediately greeted by a man in an alpaca suit who takes him in, helps him get a job with his friend. His friend's name is James Speak. And he gets him a job at the general store that Mr. Speak owns. This man in the alpaca suit, his name is Mr. Stanley. And he takes quite the shine to little John Rollins. And he ends up adopting him informally. Now, Mr. Stanley is a, a shipping man. So he's out and about an awful lot. Like he's going from here to there to yonder. And one of the places he goes to visit is Cuba. And while Mr. Stanley is away in Cuba, his wife dies of yellow fever, which is currently raging through New Orleans. And according to Henry, Mrs. Stanley's dying words to him were, be a good boy. Now, this is all sounding a little bit too good to be true. And in fact, it is a bit too good to be true. Because then Henry claims that he went to find a Mr. Stanley in Cuba only to realize that he had passed away and was unfortunately unable to correct his will and formally adopt him or leave anything to him. Nothing about that story is true. Absolutely nothing. There is not one shred of evidence to it. In fact, there's not even a shred of evidence for the existence of a Mr. Stanley. If you had someone of that much wealth and importance, especially in New Orleans, you would definitely know about them and they don't exist. Now, the person who does exist is Mr. James Speak. And James Speak actually does take him in as a son. He doesn't formally adopt him, but from all accounts, he cares about him and takes care of him. Now, Mr. Speak, unfortunately, was a victim of the yellow fever. And so he passes away. But what's interesting is Mrs. Speak asks Henry to watch over his body the day before the funeral, which is a really big honor. And in fact, we know that in 1895, much later in his life, he knows exactly where Mr. Speak is buried and he goes back to visit the grave. And he also writes a very moving tribute to Mr. Speak. Now, why he didn't give himself the name Mr. Speak or the create the adoption story about James Speak, we don't really know. What we do know, though, is that the adoption story that he tells, he tells to his mother under duress. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in this story. But it is something that he definitely regretted in his life. He kept to this story all of his life. Um, but it came out of a moment of deep shame and insecurity. And it was one of those things he really couldn't walk back after he'd said it. There would be far too much shame in it, especially as he became older and more famous. So we'll visit exactly why he decides to tell this lie about being adopted. But for now, we'll leave it there. 
He decides to move on from New Orleans, and in August of 1860, he arrives 50 miles outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, in a place called Cypress Bend. According to census records, this is where he first uses the name Henry Stanley. Unbeknownst to him, the name Henry M. Stanley will be world famous in about eight years' time. Now, Arkansas is a very different place in 1860. If you know anything about American history, you may know of a little thing called slavery. And that was quite the contentious argument at this point in time. Uh, Tensions were brewing. There was the impending election of Abraham Lincoln. America, in many ways, was changing. And Henry's a bit shocked at what he finds when he comes to Cypress Bend. There's a lot of men who talk very much of honor, and they're very sensitive, and they have hair-trigger tempers. And so for his own safety, Henry buys a Smith & Wesson and learns how to use it. And this will serve him very well in his African explorations later in life. A little bit on the personality of Henry, you would imagine that someone coming from such a rough background would have a lot of vices. And in fact, the opposite is true for Henry. It's like the more that he saw of debauchery, the more opposed to it that he became. In fact, he's described as innocent. He's a teetotaler. He's very self-willed. He has a deep love of poetry and of thought and of reading, and that actually drives some of his men crazy later on in his African explorations. He tries to use poetry to lift their spirits, and eventually they get tired of it. But we'll tell that another time. He's also very uncompromising, and he's sensitive, and these personality traits create a rather unique individual, the kind of individual that would be needed to explore the interior of Africa. Going back to the brewing tensions in the South, um, a little bit about Henry's feelings. He was a little bit indifferent to slavery. It wasn't that he was pro-slavery. For him, he was, he was a foreigner. For him, the abolition of slavery had occurred 30 years earlier in the UK, and he just didn't feel that he had much of a a dog in the fight, so to speak. But after the election of Lincoln, everything changed. Suddenly there was talk of war. There were all of these calls to arms happening, especially among the young men. And one of these companies that was started was called the Dixie Grays, and everyone left to join it. Everyone except for Henry Stanley. Soon after the Dixie Grays, as they were called, left, he receives a parcel in the mail, and this parcel contains a petticoat. Uh, He's basically being called a coward. And to make matters worse, he's receiving it from a very pretty girl from a well-to-do family, so it smarts all the more. And in his words, it's far from a laughing matter to be called a coward. And so he stands on his honor and he will later regret it, but he joins the war fighting for the South. These boys, when they join up, they're so full of fervor, they're so full of pride, but they have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. They are under-equipped, they are under-prepared. Many of them are still teenagers. So at first they begin marching out and they're singing all of the anthems and there's all of this swell of pride. And then it's very quickly uh, chipped away at by pain, by hunger, by just even the fact that your feet hurt, um, heat, all sorts of things, disease that begins to take its toll on them because they don't have adequate food. They're marching through the south in the summer. It's pretty hot. But they march their way up to Tennessee and they find themselves in the Battle of Shiloh. And if you are a Civil War buff, early in the war, the Battle of Shiloh was one of the worst battles that had been seen to date. 
and it's really a massacre for the South, and many of Henry's friends die. The Dixie Grays try to rout the Union forces at Pittsburgh Landing. They want to reach them before Grant's armies arrive from the north, and they're set to do that the next day. And so they charge forward, and they rout them back momentarily. It's a very, very brief victory, and it's a victory with a great deal of losses. And it kind of destroys this rosy picture they have of war that was already, like I said, being slowly chipped away. Now, the next day, they're marching forward, and Grant's forces are here, and they have no hope. There's just, they're not going to win at all. But as they're marching forward to meet Grant's forces, his commander calls on him and a couple other people and said, why aren't you marching forward? Go faster. And he appeals to their honor, and they rush forward, and they are almost immediately captured and taken to Camp Douglas up north. In the first week, 220 out of 8,000 prisoners had died of typhoid and dysentery. And every day, new bodies were kind of rolled up into blankets and stacked on top of each other. And if you recall, he spent a few weeks working as a butcher's boy in Liverpool. And he compares it to seeing the New Zealand sheep uh, laid out and stacked on top of each other, prepared for shipping. It's a very dehumanizing experience. Now, a Union officer comes up to him out of pity because a lot of these guys, like I said, are very young. And he comes up and he tries to appeal to him and say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you fighting for them? You're not even an American. You're a foreigner. What are you doing? And to Henry, he's thinking, well, I mean, that's true. But also, I feel bad leaving my friends here. Like, what am I going to do? And so for six weeks, he kind of vacillates. He's not really sure what to do. But at the end of that six weeks, he says, you know what? I am a foreigner. What does this really matter to me? And so he defects and he joins the union. But he's very sneaky. So he's also very sick. And he ends up spending time in the hospital. And so the union tells him, hey, don't worry about it. Just join us when you can. You can, you can meet us up here up north somewhere. And Henry's like, yeah, sure, totally, I'm going to do that. And he doesn't. He deserts. He discharges himself from the hospital. And his thought is, let me get back to home. Let me go back to my, to my mother because she will love me now. I'm a, I'm a war veteran. I am someone of note. You know, I may not have made it here in America, but I was a war veteran. And that's got to count for something, right? But he's so weak. It takes him a week to walk 12 miles, and eventually he collapses outside of a farm in Sharpsburg, uh, Maryland. And this kindly farmer takes him and nurses him back to health and pays for his railroad ticket to Baltimore. And so from Baltimore, he goes back home, and he meets not with his mom at first, he meets with his aunt and uncle. And his aunt and uncle are like, you know, I, I don't think your mom's really going to want to see you. She just lost her youngest to the meningitis a few months ago. And so I don't know this is really a good time. But in his head, he's thinking, well, you know, I, what, do I, what have I got to lose, right? And maybe grief will have softened her heart and make her realize that, you know, she has another child. And this has got to be especially hard for him as the oldest because he's very unfairly treated. The rest of the children are loved and they're taken care of and they have good lives, but not him. And to make matters worse, he finds out that now she's gotten married, she's respectable, she owns a couple pubs, she's a businesswoman. So to him, this is insulting, yes, but also maybe now she's in a position where she can actually care for him and love him. He's 21 years old when he knocks on her door with so much hope in his heart. 
And what he hears leaves him absolutely devastated. I realize that sounds like the intro to one of these like clickbait articles, but legitimately, it was very traumatizing for him because she tells him, don't come back to me unless you are in a better shape than you are now. I never want to see you again unless your life conditions have improved. And she says this to her 21-year-old son, who'd just come back from one of the bloodiest wars up to date of in history, and she doesn't care, because what she cares about is her reputation. And that absolutely devastated him, cut him to the core, and for two years, we really don't know what happened to him. We kind of have some idea, but overall, he just kind of disappears off the map for about two years. But while on one hand, it kind of made him retreat more into himself. It also made him all the more desperate to win her love and approval. And while he realizes now that there's nothing left to keep him in Britain, he also has this insane desire to just be outlandishly successful, to be this person that she can go, wow, this is my son, this is my boy. And that drives him for a great deal of his life. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For about two years, from 1862 to 1864, he works as a summer deckhand and an assistant cook. And then when he comes back to dry land, he comes back to America and he begins clerking for a very drunken public notary in the Northeast. And this guy was the worst. He had a temper. He was a raging alcoholic who at one point took a hatchet to his wife and tried to kill her. And Henry had to get between them and separate him and keep him from killing his wife. Not the ideal boss. This guy's partner decides he's had enough. He can't take it anymore. And he wants to join up in the Navy. And so he invites Henry M. Stanley to come with him. And Stanley thinks, well, you know, what have, what have I got to lose, right? But he lies about his history and he lies about ever being in the army. And this makes sense. He was a deserter. You don't want to say you were a deserter because what happens to deserters? You know, they don't live long, prosperous lives. So he lies about being a former veteran, and he also lies about any of his seafaring expertise. And he does this for a really important reason. If he has no seafaring experience, what good is he on a seafaring vessel? And so he has a higher chance of making ship's clerk or a writer. And to his luck, he does. He makes the ship's clerk. And he keeps the ship's logs, and he works directly with the first lieutenant. It's a very cushy gig. And he's able to read a lot of travel books, which becomes a new fuel passion. He begins a little bit um, in his younger years, but this is when he really, uh, really takes off for him. He just becomes this, this person that's just obsessed with traveling. And this is driven by 
his rejection by his mom. So he says, maybe I can be these great explorers. Maybe I can be someone people can go, wow. Like he wanted to be um, the next Livingston. At this point, Livingston's missionary travels was huge the worldwide. Everybody loved it. Everyone had read it. And it was so inspirational. And Henry was no exception to that uh, fanfare craze. While he's on the ship, he gets a little extra time to write. The ship he's on is involved, kind of, in the bombing of Fort Fisher, which is a battle that takes place towards the end of the war. Everything's kind of winding down. And he writes the official account and then also writes a much more sensationalized account, which he sells very successfully to multiple newspapers. So you can see that he's honing his skills. He's becoming a better writer, and he's marking his debut in a sense of being a journalist. There's another young guy on the ship whose name is Lewis No. And Lewis is one of those kids that's honestly, he's an all-American boy. He's very talented. He has lots of passion. Uh, he actually loves to do circus acrobatics and things like that. Like, he's just one of those guys you meet and you're like, yes, this guy's really cool. What can't this guy do? And Henry was no exception. And he became fast friends with this guy and considered him a bit of a, a brother. Henry begins telling Lewis all about these travel adventures he's been reading, and he finds out that Lewis also wants to travel. He wants to travel to a place he calls Southern Europe. And at first, when Henry hears this, he says, do, do you mean Asia Minor? And he's like, yeah, Southern Europe. And as I was as I was reading these, this story, I was looking up some of the different names for, uh, for Asia Minor. And apparently, the Middle East has been called so many things. So you have Asia Minor, Near East, Middle East, and apparently Southern Europe. Lewis and Henry begin to scheme about how they could be these great explorers. They could be the next Livingston. But Africa's really dangerous. So how about, how about the Middle East? How about Asia Minor? It's cheaper and it's less dangerous. So they were being very economical, very wise in their decision making. But no, they weren't going to wait until their military service was complete. They were going to leave now. And so they jumped ship at port dressed in civilians' clothes and just ran off. And they were, they were done. What was their great idea? How were they going to make enough money to make it to the Middle East? Because let's say Africa is pretty far, right? Pretty expensive. But it's not like, you know, not like the Middle East is exactly pennies, right? So their bite idea was this. They were going to have Lewis enlist in the army and then desert. And then Henry could turn him in and he could collect the bounty on him. And then they would do this over and over and over again until I guess they had enough money to make it to the Middle East. Not exactly a great plan, to be honest with you. But Lewis cracks. And so he tells his parents, we've deserted. And his parents are absolutely furious, which it makes sense. Of course, you're furious. Your, your kid could end up in a prison for the rest of life for deserting. It was a really bad decision. But likewise, Henry is also furious. Why would you do that? Why would you tell your parents? And Henry's not going to wait around for Lewis to finish his military service. No, he decides to head out to the gold rush in Colorado. In just 24 years, he'd seen so much in his life, much more than most of us will ever see in our entire existence. And that changes him. He becomes self-serving. He's above and beyond. He's outside of the framework of ordinary people. Their rules don't apply to him. And he's very selfish. And he will do whatever it takes to get what he wants. And this will become apparent very shortly. 
he becomes very embittered towards Lewis. All he wanted was loyalty and to be accepted by the boy's family, but no, he couldn't even get that. And so he's very, very bitter. And he has time. This this anger towards Lewis brews until it, it spills over in quite a horrendous way, which we'll talk about in a little while. In May of 1865, he gets a job at the Missouri Democrat, which is a newspaper based out of St. Louis, and they send him off on a really cool gig. He's reporting on the gold rush in Colorado, which is what he wanted. This is, this is, his, everything's going to plan. But when he gets there, it doesn't really pay a whole lot, and so he ends up working as a bookkeeper and a printer, and he also tries his hand at prospecting, but doesn't really have any luck. He also gets a really well-paid job smelting, so he's really doing you know, four different jobs. This is quite a busy guy. But he has a lot of money to raise. He hasn't given up. He's still going to go to the Middle East, maybe just a few years later than he had intended. While he's working the smelting gig, he also makes friends with a guy named William Harlow Cook, who was also supplementing his income. And Cook came to admire Henry. Henry didn't put up with any kind of bullying, no nonsense. Uh, he had excellent gun technique, which served him well with some of these bullying incidences. And he had this very, you don't mess with me attitude. And that was something that Cook really admired. And it was also kind of a safe person to have in your life. And Henry was very charismatic, and so in no time flat, he had convinced Cook to navigate the Platte River with him in a flat-bottomed boat. And that says a lot about the kind of personality Henry has at this point. He just gets an idea in his head, and he just goes for it, but not by himself. He's always able to convince somebody else to do it with him, which speaks to the amounts of charisma he has to exude, even from his early 20s. And he also invites Cook along on the Middle East trip whenever that happens. Their plan is to take a bunch of guns, a bunch of ammunition, ride it down the Platte River to St. Louis, meet up at Cook's family, and then go pick up Lewis in New York and then head out for the Middle East. And that goes about as well as you can imagine. And little did Cook know at this point that he is traveling 600 miles with one of the greatest explorers to be, although this trip would not exactly showcase um, that fact. Within six days, the boat had capsized, and they had lost all their guns and ammunition that they had planned to take with them to their first stop in the Middle East, which was Turkey. Near the end of the trip, they capsize again, and this time Henry is flung from the boat he had been sleeping, and he couldn't get back on. And so Cook went on his way without him, and Henry was late to all of their pre-appointed rendezvous, and eventually Henry met up with Cook at his parents' house in St. Louis. And from there, Henry wasted absolutely no time running to New York to go get Lewis. And his plan is to convince Lewis's parents to let him go with him to the Middle East. And now any sane parent would say no. This is absolutely insane. Who are you? What have you done? You convinced my child to desert from the military. No. But instead, once again, because Henry is so charismatic, they say, sure. You seem like a well-mannered man. I'll let you take my boy to the Middle East. What could possibly go wrong? The biggest thing that could go wrong, probably the catalyst to all the things that went wrong on their Middle East trip, was that Henry was 
petty, and he was very mad at Lewis for deserting him, and he treated him very poorly. He refused to share any of the profits that he and Cook had raised in their few years working at the gold smelters, and so Lewis was forced to pay his passage to Turkey working on a fruit ship, and then he was also unable to purchase a horse. So there was only two horses, one for Henry, one for Cook, and Lewis was forced to walk. And the entire journey was Lewis feeling like he was a third-class citizen to Cook. And Henry, in actuality, preferred Lewis to Cook, but he was trying to use Cook as leverage to make Lewis feel inferior and to feel really sorry and to make him pay, which is a really poor character trait. This whole trip is an absolute disaster. Lewis gets tired and gets fed up with dealing with Henry's nonsense. And so one night, while the other two are sleeping, he decides to light fire to some nearby bushes and scare Henry and Cook. But what happens is that the fire ends up spreading to a nearby village, and the village burns down, and they all get in trouble, and they're all flogged, and it's a terrible time. And Henry's even more bitter towards Lewis, and he's treated even more terribly. And as they're advancing further into their Middle East adventures, they come across a group of Turks that takes a special interest in Lewis. And Henry rightfully doesn't allow them to take him. And they get into quite the altercation, and they end up beating these guys back. But what happens is they bring their friends, and they meet up with them at a hilltop, and there's no escape, and they beat them very badly, and they all have liberty with Lewis. It's very terrible. Their case does make it to the Turkish court, and they do get back about $1,000, which was a lot more than what they paid for their uh, goods, but it wasn't enough money to assuage what Lewis had been through. And Lewis was, even in the end, shorted on the amount of money that he received. And this causes an irreparable rift between the men, as you could imagine. But all Henry is concerned about is making his mother proud. And so he uses the money that he has to buy this bogus uniform to say that he has been made an officer in the American military, in the army. And his buttons weren't quite right. They were Turkish buttons, but he thinks no one will know. And they did not know. Cook kind of drops off the map at this point. Uh, you don't really hear from Cook again. Lewis goes along with him to England, I think, because he really has no choice. He doesn't have a lot of money. And Lewis stays with his aunt and uncle while Henry goes and visits his family, and it goes well from all accounts. It looks like his mother finally accepts him and takes him in and says, My boy has finally done me proud. But while he's staying with her for a few weeks, a bunch of letters begin coming in addressed to a Henry M. Stanley. And this is where the lie of his identity comes from. And this is why I say that it is, it is a little bit understandable, honestly. Because his mother rightfully says, who is Henry M. Stanley? Why are you getting letters for this Henry M. Stanley guy? Your name is John Rollins. And so that's why, in a panic, he creates this story of his adoption, uh, because he can't really say that he made it all up. He has this house of cards, and if one thing happens, one thing goes wrong, you know, it all comes crashing down. And so to him, he's forced to stick with this story for the rest of his life, because after this, he becomes famous. And at this point, he's not going to tell people that he created a whole story about his false adoption. That just sounds really lame. And that's why I say it's regrettable, and he probably shouldn't have continued to lie about it. But I can also see where he's coming from and understand why he felt the need to do it. 
After a few weeks, he leaves his mother's, and this is about 1866, and Lewis is going back with him to America, and he's trying to patch things up with Lewis, and it's just not working. It's really not. And that's, once again, understandable. But Henry tells Lewis about this, this dream he has of finding Livingston. Livingston has been missing for a little while. No one's heard from him, and Henry has this idea of being the one to find Livingston. He thinks he's still out there. There's rumor that he's heading towards, you know, the western side of Africa. People kind of have an idea of maybe where he is. And Lewis thinks, I want to be the one to find him. He even goes to the London office of the New York Herald, which is the biggest paper in the country, in America at the time. Um, And he's obviously turned away. He has almost zero experience, and he's no fit for one of the largest newspaper companies in the world. Now, Henry is unable to patch things up with Lewis, and they leave England on separate ships, and they never speak to each other again. In February of 1867, Henry goes back to the Missouri Democrat and tries to get his old job back. And he is very persistent because they do not want to give it to him because he's not proven to be very reliable as an employee. But he's very charismatic, and so he gets his job back. And he's making $15 a week plus expenses, and this is a big deal. Uh, He is a full-time employee, and he's making honorable living wages, And so this is a turning point for him. He never again has to scrap and scrounge to make a living. Once again, he gets very fortunate with his assignments, and he's chosen to join General Winfield Scott Hancock in the Indian campaign against the Kiowas and the Comanches. And it's here that he has a huge shift in his thought process. At first, when he's working alongside Hancock, or at least reporting on Hancock, he is siding with the settlers. And then he begins to side more with the Indians, and he's in favor of the reservations rather than driving them from the plains. His thought process is that they shouldn't interfere with the railroads and developments, but the government should provide help, allowing them to live a settled existence, tending flocks and herds. He even stops Hancock from burning an Indian village. His time in the American West really changed how he thought about the progression of civilization. While he disapproved of land theft, he felt that it's rather inevitable and it's worldwide. He felt a deep sympathy for the tribes, but also believed that it's useless to blame the settlers for moving across the continent, for if we proceed in that manner, we shall presently find ourselves blaming the Pilgrim Fathers for landing on Plymouth Rock. Henry is unable to stay still, and within a few months, he ditches the Missouri Democrat and he heads off for New York because he knows that no Midwestern paper is going to give him an assignment to go to Africa and find Livingston. So he heads off with a scrapbook full of articles he had written for the Missouri Democrat and for multiple other newspapers. In December of 1867, he arrives at the New York Herald office. And this is America's, like I said, America's biggest newspaper. And it was run by James Gordon Bennett Jr., who was one of the richest men in the world. Bennett had an absolutely terrifying reputation, and he held the average man in contempt. He's famous for saying, All the brains I want can be picked up any day for $25 a week. And he wasn't wrong. But success at the Herald, however brief, guaranteed success anywhere. So it was worth it. This is the only shot that Henry thinks that he has. But right before he arrives, an article had been released by the New York Times about how Livingston was not lost. And so that took the wind out of his sails. He could no longer pitch this great, let's find Livingston speech to Bennett. 
but he had a plan B. And that was the growing altercation between King Theodore, who was emperor of Ethiopia, and the British military. The story here is actually quite sad. King Theodore is a Christian king. He's beloved by his people. Everybody loves him. Queen Victoria is a huge fan and had gifted him a pair of ornamental pistols. Now, encroaching on his territory was the Ottoman Empire, and they were very well armed. And in contrast, the Ethiopian army was very primitive. They needed weaponry, and Theodore had been begging Queen Victoria to send him weapons so they could defend themselves, and he sent another plea shortly after his ornamental pistols arrived, and he said, hey, I need some more military gear, and that letter got waylaid, unintentionally or intentionally, who's to say? But Theodore got quite upset, and in response, he locks up 20 Christian missionaries and a few other uh, French consul members. And even so, these 20 missionaries are being forced to watch the executions of other Ethiopian prisoners. They're telling the British military, don't come, don't come. This will be so much worse if you come. Wait for this to die down. But the British military refuses to listen. So there's quite a story brewing here. And Henry thinks that he can get in and this will make his career, that he can show Bennett that he's worth his salt. Bennett tells Harry that the Herald has absolutely no interest in Africa because the American people have no interest in Africa. Henry negotiates back and forth. He says, well, if you pay my expenses the lowest salary, how about you pay by the letter? And he could write for other papers. But in the end, Bennett says, well, how about you pay your own expenses? And if you wow us, you can be full time. This is a terrible deal. But when you're Henry... What other choice do you have? And I think any of us in the same position probably accept the same thing because he thinks, I can do this. I have faith in my abilities and I am 100% ready to go. And also I have nothing to lose and everything to gain. In January 20, 1868, he arrives at Suez and he bribes the telegram clerk to send his letters ahead of the other journalists. When he gets there, there's 30 steamers, 30,000 men, almost 14,000 troops, 2.5 thousand horses, 44 elephants, and 16,000 mules. It is absolute overkill. Henry's very smart. He passes himself off as an American. And that made him very disarming because no one thinks he's on his side. He's very neutral. And he's invited to dine with the general and other officers and gets all the freshest scoops. Now, the Ethiopian outcome is really quite tragic because, like I said, the Ethiopian military is woefully ill-equipped. They are very have very basic arms. Um, they're very outdated. And the British military comes in and just crushes them. And King Theodore commits suicide with one of his ornamental pistols. And it's over very quick. And to complicate matters a little bit more, he has a young son, and he tells his officials, tells his wife, that he wants his boy to be educated in England by the court, because they're the only ones that he trusts, which is very confusing. So no one really knows why King Theodore decided to do this exactly, what made him snap um, in such an extreme way. Um, but when the little boy arrives in Queen Victoria's court, Everyone loves him. He's treated very, very well. Um, but a few years into his stay, he succumbs to, I believe, the flu. So the whole thing is just very tragic. 
Now, after the outcome has been realized, Henry races back to the ship that was waiting for them, and he gets there before anybody else, and the ship is going to have to be quarantined for five days. But he's smart, and he already, he smuggles out his letters and gets them to the telegram clerk, and they get sent out days ahead of anyone else's. And this is especially providential because right after his letters are sent, a fault develops between Alexandria and Malta, and so it takes him a few days to fix it. And when his letters arrive in New York, everyone's kind of skeptical. They say, well, why is his the only one that's being reported? Bennett is over the moon. He praises his man for his vast superiority in style of writing, minuteness in detail, and graphic portrayal. And Henry is offered a permanent post. This is a huge deal, a major turning point in Henry's life. Now I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. There's a few things that happen here and there. There's a couple love stories, different things like that. But in this is going to be quite the lengthy episode as it is, so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. In October of 1868, the world received news that Livingston was headed to the coast and was a few weeks' march from reaching it. Stanley had been staying in Barcelona covering the brewing uh, independence movements of Cuba, but he gets summoned back to London, and when he arrives, he is greeted by Finley Anderson, who is the London chief of the New York Herald. And this is the guy that he had pitched to a few years earlier, asking if he could be the guy to find Livingston. Bennett wanted Henry to be his man to intercept and interview Livingston as he advanced towards the coast. This is so exciting. This is exactly what Henry had been waiting for for so long. And a few days later, he receives word telling him to catch up with Livingston, to meet him, and to assure him that the people of the U.S., not less than the people of Great Britain, have anxiously looked for his safe return. But sadly, after a few weeks' time, Henry could find nothing on Livingston. Everything had dried up. In fact, it didn't look like he was headed for the coast at all. He could find nothing. And so Anderson is sacked, and Henry is told to go back to Spain to cover Cuba's fight for independence from Spain. But then there's a little blurb that comes up that says, maybe Livingston has been seen headed towards the coast after all, or maybe he's headed towards the interior. Nobody really knows, but we've heard from him again, and he's headed somewhere. And so Bennett really wants Henry to be the guy to find him. But word travels really fast in journalistic circles, and so the whole journalistic world was a frenzy, thinking we can be the ones to reach Livingston. We're going to do it. No, we're going to do it. Very fierce competition. And Bennett is the number one U.S. newspaper for a reason. And so he tells Henry, well, first of all, you're going to go through Egypt. Then you're going to go through Israel. Then you're going to go to Syria, then Iraq, then Crimea, then Persia, and finally to India, where you should go to Bombay or maybe Zanzibar. Now, Bennett's hope is that the trail on Livingston, much like last time, would grow cold and reporters would move on, much like Bennett had a few months earlier. And he was right. The trail did grow cold and people kind of moved on, but not Bennett and not Henry. As far as anyone knew, the last known whereabouts of Livingston were that he was headed west into cannibal country. And from there, nobody knew, and very few people held out hope that he would ever be found. But Henry had not given up. He was going to be the guy to find Livingston, and he would show him to the world, and he would make his debut as a world-class journalist and explorer.
This was part one of the story of Henry M. Stanley. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it left you wanting more and you still have two more parts of his journey to enjoy. Next episode will be dedicated wholly to his search for Livingston. So I look forward to sharing that with you all next time. As always, thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. (sighs) Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.